This is a Data Science Channel program from the Halijialu Data Science Institute. Visit us at ucsd.tv slash data-science to learn more about how data is shaping our future. My name is Shannon Ellis. I am an assistant teaching professor in HDSI, so the Haligiolu Data Science Institute and the Cognitive Science Department. I focus mainly on teaching large undergraduate data science and programming courses to our wonderful undergraduates here at UC San Diego. This question should be way easier than it actually is because it's hotly debated in the field. Everybody has their own definition. Um, and mine, I try to keep simple and sweet. So data science, to me, is the scientific process of extracting value from data. And that value could be monetary, but it also could be value in the context of knowledge or gained information in some way. Data science is relevant now for as many reasons as you could possibly think of. We are awash in data. Our phones are constantly collecting data on us. Every time we send an email, that's a whole bunch of data. So we have more data than we've ever had before, both on the individual level and at the population level, just with the way technology has gone over the past few decades. So having these data mean that we can then extract more value. We can ask more interesting questions. And so think of your favorite field, and there's a data science question and a data science approach to answer that question. And so simply by having the data and having the technology and the ways to store the data and process the data, um, we're able to ask way more interesting questions than we used to. I do actually have an aha moment. Okay. So as an undergraduate, I was a biology major. And I was uh, working with somebody named Jeremiah Uri at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. So this tiny liberal arts college. And he and I had worked together for four years. I had done research with him and I, he knew I had an interest in genetics. He knew I wanted to do research. And we worked on these little things called microarrays. And so you extract RNA and then you put a whole bunch of washes over top of them. And at the end, you get this tiny little slide that the colors on it represent the like relative levels of expression for this thing that we were studying, which was called Cryptococcus neoformensis fungus. Okay, all of that said, I spent months and months and months preparing these slides. And then we took these slides to a scanner and we put them through the scanner and it took a picture of my slide. And that picture was my data. And I had spent months pipetting things in little tubes, not really seeing what was going on to get this picture. So I had a whole bunch of these pictures and then there was a software that we used to analyze the data. And so I like entered my pictures and out came the results. And I was like, what just happened when I clicked that button? And I, I asked my professor, I was like, well, what's going on? Like, what did it go, how did it go from that picture to those numbers to those results? And he said to me, if you weren't about to graduate, I would teach you Python. And I thought to myself, note to self, go Google that when you get back, because I didn't know what Python was. And so I Googled Python, I learned it was a programming language. And so at that aha moment, I was like, okay, I want to understand analysis so that I don't have to trust this piece of software, even though it might be trustworthy. I want to understand what's happening in that black box when I click go to get my results. And so at that point, I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to continue on research because that's what I want to do at the time, doing something that I will learn to do computation, whatever that meant. Um, and so I chose graduate programs where there was a deep 
statistical um, set of courses and that I would be able to join a lab where I would learn computation. And so that was like my aha moment was where I was like, how did it decide those things for me after I spent months in a second to come up with those answers? I sometimes joke with other people who ask about my job and I say it's really easy because data science is that hot thing that all the students want to learn. Nobody's going to come into my class and be like, when am I ever going to use this? Because students have this understanding that these skills are applicable as they go forward. But in the classroom, it changes a ton. Students come in thinking and knowing that they're interested in this concept of data science without having a full and deep understanding of what that means. And so, for example, they come in and they're like, AI, machine learning, that's the hot new thing. I want to do that. And I try to, like, rein them in a little bit in the classroom. I'm like, that, like, the techniques used for machine learning problems are super interesting. But let's spend the time talking about the ethical approaches. What do you need to think about the data? Are your data complete? And to really think about all those steps leading up to using your new favorite machine learning algorithm. And so trying to add the context and the ethics and the deep thinking students need so that they can go on to do those interesting algorithmic approaches that they want to do. And that's what I try to do inside the classroom. So the specific challenges for accessing information, I have a few thoughts and they're not all tied together. So like for the first one, I'm gonna put on my biology hat and my genetics hat, which is what my background is. There, if you got government funding in the United States and wanted to publish your work, it has been established for a while that you have to make the data public. And so the data are available, and this is so that others can either reproduce your work or replicate your work, or so that others can use the data in some other way that works for them. So the data are there, but often they're in these huge systems. They're not well annotated, meaning like you don't know much about the data or the sample that it came from or they're hard to get out. You still have to do a ton of processing. They take a ton of space. So there's like access issues, not that the data aren't there for you to use, um, but more it's not a trivial process to actually use them. So I think that's a that's one side of the spectrum that's actually an easier to access kind of issue. The other side, in the classroom, um, in one of my courses, we do um, group projects. Well, I don't do them. My students do group projects that I ask them to do. Um, and they, I have them start with a question. And I try to tell them, think of a topic that you're interested in that would help your community, would help your family, would, that, you, that would help large society. And they can choose whatever they want. And they have to come up with their question before they go find their data. And sometimes they come up with really interesting questions, but the data are going to be proprietary, meaning a company has those data for sure, right? You want to analyze the sentiments people are saying on Twitter over some period of time um, and look at the, how it corresponds to politics, for example. Twitter has what's known as an API, so you can get some data from Twitter. But if you worked inside Twitter, you would have access to a lot more data. So I'm using Twitter as an example there for very good reasons. Companies don't give you access to all of their data, both for monetary reasons that they have and for privacy reasons. So I'm not saying it's a, it's a problem so much as the barrier is sometimes you have a really great idea, but the data exist, but you're, they just don't exist to you. Um, and so you just won't be able to access them. Typically, my work starts with a question. There's something I want to answer. Um, and I try to mimic that for students as well, because it can be really easy to go search on the internet for an available data set. 
and then form a question around that. But that's not really what you end up doing at work, right? Like your company's not gonna be like, go look at the data and see what you can ask. Typically they're gonna say, hey, we have these um, benchmarks we want to ask a question about. We wanna see why this isn't working as intended and you answer that question. And so for me, it starts with a question and then it starts with, do I have the data to answer it? And simultaneously, do I have the knowledge background to answer it? And this is something I also try to teach students. Like you can ask a really interesting question, but if you've never thought about that topic before, it's your, you have to do your due diligence. You need to do background research. You need to read other publications. You need to get some knowledge in that area before you can do any sort of analysis. In my own work now, I mostly ask questions about the classrooms that I teach in. Um, and so it's a whole other can of worms. I have the data. It's a um, it's a handful of questions. One is, what can I use these data for ethically? So a lot of working with the IRB, which is the Institutional Review Board, which is a great body that exists at every academic institution. Um, and so I tell them what I want to do, and they tell me if that's okay. And they are experts, so they are great people to um, get to know. Um, and then the second is, there's a ton of variability in education. So the data themselves, every quarter, every term, I have different students. So how can I compare this term to last term when it's not the same people? And what if I wanna change up how I ask one question on a survey? Or clearly my exams aren't the same from one quarter to another. So it's um, not as much as a data accessibility, but a what information do these data have and what can I use and what should I not ask and what should I not use? And talking to the experts there as well. Me asking questions of my students doesn't put them nearly at as much risk as like me opening up someone's skull and doing brain surgery. So like, and of course, not every biological human subject's research is opening up someone's brain, but there's there's less inherent risk. So there are different um, procedures that you go through with the IRB um, to, because just because the risks are lower, but they still, like when I submit things to the IRB, they want to see the surveys I'm asking. They want to see what I've communicated to students about how their data are going to be used um, and what those students' expectations were. And so they're really coming at it with the lens of protecting students and student information um, while at the same time knowing and just being realistic that they, these students aren't being put at as much risk as they could be in other human subjects research. So we do have different paths and different avenues there. Um, but they are, they're protecting students and they're protecting students' privacy as well, making sure like, how are we gonna anonymize data? Is it truly anonymized? Is, is something identifiable? Um, even if you remove their names, for example. Um, and so it is a different lens. It is not as, uh, it's not as thought of like harm and risk, even though of course they're trying to protect students as some human subjects research, but I have found the process to be really thoughtful. Every time I've submitted something and gotten something back being like, hey, did you think of this? How are you handling this? You know, have you considered about this identification process from the IRB? And it's just made me more thoughtful through the process as well. So when I think about like data access and data flow, getting the data, sometimes easier than others. Um, once you have the data and you've determined that it can answer your question, I try to encourage my students to do, and myself, to do tons of exploratory data analysis. And by that, I mean like, get to know your data deeply. Who has missing information? What are the typical values? Does anybody have a value that looks way off and there could have been an error? 
Um, if something's missing, is it missing at random or is it missing not at random? And how are we going to consider that? And so like this deep, like get to know your data to convince yourself even further that it is the data you need to answer that question is a really important part of this like data flow. And sometimes it's circular, right? You like do this explore exploration. You're like, oh, these aren't what I need. I either need to go back and do a different experiment or I need to go back and talk to the company about the data that they have and this isn't going to work or a different format. Um, and that process often doesn't show up in your resulting work, right? Like you don't talk about in your report or your paper all the things that failed in the middle and and that's just part of the process. So I like to talk about that, right? Like you make mistakes, your question's not great, you didn't get the data you need, you explored it and realized you didn't have enough and you have to go back to the drawing board and either ask a different question because you're not gonna be able to answer it or get different data um, to be able to see the process through to the end where you do the analysis and you write the report or you write the paper. In graduate school, I was analyzing the genetic basis of autism and I was in a lab at a school of medicine and we had samples from individuals who were affected with autism and those who were not. And these were post-mortem samples. So these are individuals who had passed away and who had donated their brains to science and I was analyzing these data. The closest I got to the autistic population was looking at this spreadsheet of information I knew about these people, which gave me very little information about who they were or even what their, quote, autism was, right? We know it's this huge spectrum. And so I wasn't there integrated with the autistic community. I wasn't asking about their needs. I wasn't communicating with them. And like, if, if I'm doing this research, what is it that you as a community feel you want and feel you need? And so I think we're having a reckoning right now that that needs to be true, regardless of who you're studying or who you're working with or who you're developing for. So, for example, if you're developing for the disability community, individuals with the disabilities you're trying to address should be part of the process from start to finish. Not just answering questions, but probably on your engineering team, probably there in the room as you're doing development, as you're doing beta testing, as you're launching this into the world. And even if you think you have the world's best idea and you're going to make this brilliant startup around it, like make sure you've talked to the people who you're trying to help before you come up with this um, product. And so that's what I try to teach my students. That's what I am excited for us to do better is to make sure those that we're helping or innovating for or developing for are just part of the process um, throughout. The barriers are somewhat historical. So we all know the stories of the largest tech companies that are starting up. Maybe we don't all know about the like demographic um, demographics of individuals who get venture capital funding. Um, But I can tell you that um, the diversity has just not been there. And I don't think it's for malintent necessarily. I, I think it was people have an idea and they want to innovate on that idea. And people have been willing to fund that and they hit the ground and run with it. So I think part of the barriers are just awareness is the first one, right? If you're not aware that you should probably have other people as part of your team and how that can make your team and your product better overall, um, then you wouldn't think to go in that direction and you would just hire your friends who happen to be people that looked like you in college. So we've had some of that historical um, pressure. Another part is economical in that if you start a startup, you have very few people in the beginning and often you're not making a ton of salary in the beginning. Only certain people can, from certain backgrounds, can afford to not make a ton of money for a whole year. Um, Now, sometimes 
these founders end up making tons of money down the line, but you need that ability in the beginning to take that risk. And obviously that's going to limit large swaths of our population. I do teach hundreds and thousands of students each year. Um, I think that the biggest impact I'll have is by teaching others how to consider the ethical implications of their work throughout their entire process. So that doesn't just mean like, are you allowed to have these data? It means, should you use these data to ask that question? Are you protecting individuals in collecting the data and storing the data? Are you looking for biases in the results of your analysis? And so teaching that throughout the entire process, because data is the through line, um, I think that's where I'll have the most important role in this when it comes to data access and teaching that and giving examples and making sure it's a theme throughout my course and not just 20 minutes in a lecture one day. Um, so that's what it looks like to me is continuing to teach this and demonstrate it to the next generation. Um, in my own work, I hope to have access to the data that I need to answer the questions that I'm interested in. But if it's not the data that I should have, I hope that the other experts in that field are the ones asking the questions um, that I set out to ask or I collaborate with them. And um, so, yeah, I think that's secondary, though, to uh, making sure that my students are thinking about this as they go forward and acting upon it. This field has moved quickly, and even if you think about like Google, this like move quickly, break things. I'm excited to kind of rein things back, pull things in, um, and think deeply. So there is a huge field of AI ethics and machine learning ethics, um, and I'm not an ethics expert, and this is not necessarily where I did my dissertation by any means, but I'm excited for those voices to continue to get heard and to get more exposure and to be valued inside of companies. Um, companies, uh, I'm painting large, painting broad strokes here, have prioritized this ability to like innovate and embrace new technology and learn more about like what your preferences are so they can give you advertisements. And I think companies and analysts and data scientists have found that fun. I'm excited for us to take a look back, be introspective and make sure that those systems are not harming individuals, not harming certain populations. And I would say we're at this crossroads right now where those people exist and they are knowledgeable and they are speaking out, um, but they are not necessarily being listened to as much as I think they should be. And so I'm excited for companies to embrace these individuals um, and, and academics. They tend to have academic jobs often, um, but for both academics and companies to embrace this idea that we need to think carefully about the products we put out in the world. We need to check for bias. We need to make sure we're not harming groups or individuals within marginalized groups. Um, and so probably not what most data scientists would say they're most excited about, but it is what I am most excited about.